As the Defense Department looks to its future force levels, continuing problems with recruitment means it has to focus more than ever on retention. Here to tell us about some of the retention efforts, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore. Alexandra, how are we today? Great. Thanks, Eric. All right. So what is DOD's strategy for better retention? Well, they've got a whole lot of things cooking on that. One of the things is career options. They're they're creating specific career paths for specialists. They're allowing people to switch paths halfway through their careers, trying to give them more flexibility so that instead of saying, well, I'm finished with what I'm doing, I'm going to move into a civilian career, they're willing to stay on and do something maybe new in the military. The other issue is lifestyle issues, and the, the DOD has done a lot to try and work with those issues. The saying they have have is recruit the soldier and retain the family. And so what they're trying to do is make life a little bit easier for military families. Here's Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, Alex Wagner. We're about 90% retention at key intervals uh, between officers and enlisted in the Department of the Air Force. And what does that tell us? That tells us that once people join, they want to stay. But increasingly, we are in competition with the private sector, we've got to be an employer of choice. And that's not only an employer of choice for the member, but also for their dependents. And so all of these quality of life issues are not tangential to our mission. And Alex Wagner, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. And so what are the services doing to make career paths more attractive to people? They're allowing you to stay in one career if you don't want to be a line officer in some cases. So if you're maybe a cybersecurity expert, you can stay as a cybersecurity expert and not have to go and compete with line officers and go into a different career area. Another thing they're doing is if you enlist and you have a certain specialty and after you finish your first term of enlistment, you think, well, I didn't really like that. I'd like to try something new. In some cases, you're going to be able to try a whole new specialty. And then there's education. All of the services are really pushing education. They're offering money to go to universities for degrees. They're also doing a lot of certification programs. And then they've got some in-house education programs as well. Here's Navy Assistant Secretary for Manpower, Franklin Parker. Another thing that we feel very strongly about, and I know our secretary really has championed, is the Naval Community College, and that's something we stood up over the past year. And it's, it's geared specifically towards our enlisted service members, and it allows them the opportunity to get associate's degrees, but also professional credentials in other areas that are specific to, to, to their warfighting duties that will help them operationally be better warfighters, but at the same time will help provide them with skills and credentials that will help support and advance them throughout their careers as well. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, and you mentioned those lifestyle issues, Alexandra. What about the lifestyle issues is the military trying to capitalize on? There are a lot of things that have to do with housing and childcare and where you live. Childcare has really been a big issue for the military. They've been starting to allocate money to improve it, uh, particularly for new installations. All the services are getting new childcare facilities and they're giving more money to childcare workers. But even when they do that, they're having trouble staffing. They they just can't get enough people to work in military childcare centers. So the Secretary of Defense said they'd offer for workers 50% discount on tuition for their first child if you work in a child care center, and then 25% for the next child. But the Air Force went even further. Here's Alex Wagner. I wanted to see if those types of programs, those incentive programs, 
uh, enhance access to fa family child care homes, and recruiting and retention incentives made a difference. And I'm pleased to report that they have. Last year at this time, our uh, staffing was at 65%. And right before I came over here, the numbers I got was we've moved the needle to 76%. So these things are making a difference. All right. And diversity is top of the list for a lot of agencies and military components. Uh, what are the military components that you heard from? What are they doing to make their ranks more diverse? That's one of the issues they really talk a lot about, because obviously if they have recruiting problems, they want to make sure everyone feels like there's a place for them in the military. And so there have been a couple initiatives that have come up recently. The Army started a women's initiative team that specifically promotes issues surrounding female service members. It looks at career choices, availability of promotions, health care, all the kind of things that women service members might be concerned about. And then all of the service chiefs have spoken out about how much stronger diversity makes their services. In one study, if you had a diverse team, they were actually across the board more successful than a team that was more homogenous. And from a family perspective, Alex Wagner says they need to make sure that families are treated well and protected from bigotry in their home environments. Here's what he had to say about it. Part of our responsibility is not only taking care of the member, but taking care of their entire family. When I hear stories of racism in schools, when I get requests, when I'm forced to move families from installations because their school will do nothing when their LGBT kid is being bullied. That worries me because that's distracting from the mission. That's detracting from our readiness. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thank you so much for reporting on this. Thanks very much, Eric. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You wanna think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kinda brilliant. see all of that, you that's know? <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.